If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 2, to a very, very fam- another very familiar passage. We're actually going to be skipping around a lot. You can follow along or not. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of traveling uh, through the Old Testament today, so if you choose to simply listen today, that's, that's perfectly fine. But we're going to begin with this very familiar story from Luke, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Amen. For all of us, no matter who we are, for all of us, um, places, places play a significant uh, role in our lives and in our memories. Some places for us have extremely positive connotations. Other places, eh, not so much. A couple of years ago, I was, I was looking online at some news about the area that I come from in Scotland, and I discovered that my old high school was in the process of being knocked down and replaced with something bigger and better. It was only built in 1970. It was the same year I was born, and it was being replaced. I hadn't thought about my my high school for years. But when I read that, I felt this, this deep stab inside me as I thought about all the times that I'd spent there, all the friends that I had made, and some of the trouble that we had got up to over the years. I, I imagine that for, for many people, um, there must have been a similar type of feeling when, when the old Yankee Stadium was being torn down and was going to be replaced with something new, something better. Every two or three years, I, I take a trip back to Scotland. Obviously, that's very significant for me because for me, it's going home. And there are still some very, very significant places there, places that I make every attempt to go to when I'm in Scotland, places I try to take the boys to, and I try to, to tell them about the significance of these places. Um, some of the places have a national significance. Museums, castles, battle sites. Places that have a, a family significance. Uh, the town that I was brought up in. My father's and my, my grandparents' graves. Places that have a very personal significance. St. Andrew's, the university town where, where my wife and I went to university, where we met, where we dated, and eventually where we got married. In, in Scripture, places also play a significant role. Think about it. The Bible starts in Genesis, way back in a particular place, Eden, the Garden of Paradise. And then it loops all the way back around, at the very end of the book of Revelation, back to paradise, where heaven and earth come together. And God makes His dwelling place with men and women. 
The Bible is, is full of journeys, but in the midst of all of these journeys, there are, there are certain places that are set apart, places to which people return, places that become significant through the telling of the story, places that play a significant role in the unfolding plan of redemption. Now, you see this sort of thing happening quite significantly in the life of, of Abraham, the first of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, God's call comes to him. It says, God, God says to him, leave your home, leave your kindred, leave everything behind, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And Scripture says that Abraham left just as God told him. Now, it's interesting in the telling of the story that when, when Abraham reached um, certain places in the journey, he would, he would stop. He would build an altar in that place, and he would worship the Lord. And then after a time, he would move on again. And then he would stop, and then he would build an altar, and then he would worship, and then he would move on again. And then he would, and it goes on, and it goes on. And many of these places of worship were, were places that were returned to again and again and again, not just in Abraham's life, but also in the lives of the patriarchs, also in the lives of the children of Israel as well. In the telling of the story, we're told Abraham journeyed by stages. It literally means that he pulled up his tent pegs. They were a nomadic, kind of Bedouin type of people. They were constantly moving, but they were moving in a particular direction. They're leaving behind them a clear path of places, places of worship. Other places in the Bible that played um, a, a significant role were, were grave sites. Even to this day, two of the most holy sites in Judaism are, are graves. Now, the first most holy site is not a grave. Most of us are familiar with it. It's, it's the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, part of the foundations of Herod's temple. We're, we're familiar with the images of, of the Hasidic men standing in front of the wall, bowing in, in prayer. That's obviously not a grave. But the second most holy site is a grave. It's called the, the Cave of Machpelah, or the Cave of the Patriarchs. And it's where the Bible says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried. It's located close to Hebron. And as you might imagine, it too is a place of significant pilgrimage. But it's the third place that we're actually interested in today. And this place is, is another grave. It's the grave of Rachel. Rachel was the, the favorite wife of the patriarch Jacob. He was also married to Rachel's older sister, Leah. They were allowed to do that in those days, kind of like Mormons, but different. It was... <laughs> whatever. Uh, it was... <laughs> It was the girl's father's trickery that, 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 that brought about this, this situation where Rachel and Leah both ended up married to, to Jacob. And if, if you look later at Genesis 29, you can, you can see that story. Leah was extremely fruitful. She bore Jacob many children, but not so much Rachel. It was many, many years before she bore Jacob any children. She went through much hardship and much sorrow, but eventually... Eventually, she gave birth to a boy called Joseph, who became Jacob's favorite son. We know him because of his coat, many colors. And you can read Joseph's story at the end of the book of Genesis. 
But then sometime later, she found, Rachel found herself um, expecting uh, again. They were traveling uh, during her pregnancy, and, and she went into labor. And in Genesis 35 and verse 16, we're told that she had a hard labor. And she actually died during childbirth. This second child was, was Benjamin. Now, why is her tomb significant to us today? It's, it's not just because it's recognized as the, as the third holiest site in Judaism, but it's because of where it is. Genesis 35 and 19 tells us where it is. It says, So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob erected a pillar in her memory, and there's a place of worship there today on the outskirts of the city of Bethlehem. So, from the very earliest times in the history of God's dealings with people, Bethlehem has played a significant part. It's been a place of pilgrimage, a holy place from the very beginning of the story. Now, what we're going to do today is, is to look at this place, this Bethlehem, and try and learn some more about its significance and see how of all the possible places the Messiah could have been born, Bethlehem in Judea was the one place that it really had to be. So many things about this little town point us towards Jesus Christ. Now, we're all very familiar with the, the prophecy about Bethlehem from Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That's only one mention of Bethlehem. There are, there are various themes, though, that run throughout its history, and it's helpful for us to, to take some time to look at these different themes and to get a sense of that place, to understand more about its significance. <clears throat> now, one of the most beautiful and one of the most significant stories about Bethlehem is about a woman called Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons. The story goes that there was a famine in the land, so Elimelech took his family across the border to the land of, of Moab. Now, the Moabites were the traditional enemies of the Israelites. When not long after they arrived there, Elimelech died. And in Moab, the sons married Moabite women. And then not long after that, the sons died. So Naomi, in her grief, decides to go back to, to Bethlehem, the city that they came from. And one of her daughters-in-law, a girl called Ruth, whose story we can read about in the book of Ruth, came with her. And while in Bethlehem, as, as widows, these two women, they struggle financially. But Ruth is, is noticed by a man called Boaz. He's a distant family member. And he allows her to glean from his crops and from his threshing floor. Boaz, as a, as a relative, has the right, if he chooses, to redeem Ruth from her situation, to redeem her property 
in order that it would remain in the family instead of being distributed among others. So, Boaz, in his grace and in his kindness, he chooses to be her redeemer. They get married. They have a child called Obed. Obed has a son called Jesse. Jesse has seven sons, and then he has one more son, and that son's name is David. In the story of Ruth, though, there are a number of themes that are developed later on in Scripture and that, and that play a significant role in the, in the working out of God's plan of redemption. The first theme is, is, is that of strangers and aliens being a part of the family of God. Now, in this story, the story of Ruth, this is only a germ of that theme since it's really not fully developed until the New Testament, but it's there. Ruth comes from Moab. She's a foreigner. She's a Gentile. She's not Jewish. She's outside of the covenant. It's actually a little bit more significant than that. According to Deuteronomy 23, Moabites were considered anathema to Israel. That that means there was a special curse upon them. And they had this special curse on them because of the way that they treated the Israelites while the Israelites were in their period of wandering. They were quite literally enemies of God's people. And yet, even as an enemy, Ruth is brought into the family of God through the kindness of her Redeemer. She becomes the great-grandmother of David and the descendant of Jesus one who was outside of the covenant is brought into the covenant by a redeemer, okay? Now, this theme is much more fully developed later in the New Testament, where we see Paul writing in Galatians and elsewhere that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but all are one in Christ. He especially brings it home in Romans chapter 5 where he says this, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So, the promise that's hinted at in the story of Ruth and Boaz is that ultimately racial and cultural and class boundaries will be broken down, and people from every possible background will become a part of the family of God, not just just Jews, but all who are called to respond. That's the first theme. The second theme is that of of redemption itself. Now, there are two issues going on um, that that, that are tied into this this, uh, theme of redemption. The first is the redemption of property. A close family member had the right to purchase the property of a deceased relative in order to maintain the property within that family. The second issue is something that, that we're really not very familiar with at all in our culture, I mean, in fact, I mean, it sounds kind of bizarre in so many ways. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of Jewish law called leverate marriage. Now, this is where a, brother, um, where a brother or a close relative 
marries a childless widow and fathers children on behalf of his deceased relative in order to continue the family line. Okay? It's an act, it's not required by the law, but it's strongly encouraged. Uh, If someone who could possibly be a redeemer refuses to be a redeemer, then they're publicly shamed. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 25. But more than anything else, this redemption is, is an act of grace and an act of absolute kindness. Because in the redemption, there is a cost. And in the marriage, if, there are no, if there's no more than one child, then the husband's line, the new husband's line is lost. Because the child takes... The child takes the name of the deceased husband, and his line continues. So there's a tremendous cost in this theme of redemption. These wonderful themes that we see here in seed form in the the generations uh, of Jesus, in the early generations, we, we, we see them played out in their fullest in Jesus Christ himself. This Redeemer is someone who has to be related by blood. He's part of the family. In Jesus, God became a man. He became related to us. He is God, but as a Redeemer, He's human. The Redeemer also has to be able to pay the price. He must have the required funds in order to be able to redeem the property or the person. He must have the necessary means Jesus was able to redeem us because he was able to pay the price. And that price was his blood. The Redeemer must also be willing to pay the price. It is possible, as I mentioned, it is possible for the, for the kinsman to, to refuse to redeem. So if, if someone is going to be redeemed, it will require a willingness on the part of the Redeemer. Jesus was not only able to redeem us by paying the price through his death, he was willing to do it. He voluntarily gave up his own life. (coughs) So Bethlehem has associated with it these wonderful themes of being chosen by God, being shown uh, unmerited kindness and grace, and this wonderful theme of redemption. That's the first thing about Bethlehem. It's the place of the Redeemer. The second thing about Bethlehem is that it is is the city of David. In the first story, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we're introduced to David, we we find that David is introduced to us as the one who is the shepherd king. Now, in this story, God speaks to Samuel, the priest, and he tells him to go to Bethlehem, to the house of of Jesse, and to anoint one of his sons, one of Jesse's sons, whom God has already chosen to be king. Now, there's a problem with this, and here's the problem. Uh, Israel already has a king, and the king's name is Saul, and Saul's quite an angry type of guy, And Samuel knows that if Saul finds out that he's gone to Bethlehem to anoint someone else to be king, 
Saul's not going to be too happy with him. So Samuel's, Samuel's a little bit afraid. He doesn't know what to do. God, you want me to do this? But Saul's going to kill me if he finds out. So God says, okay, here's the plan. Let's do it like this. He sends him to, to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice. He tells him, invite Jesse, invite his sons to be there. And that way, he goes to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice. He'll be protected from the anger of Saul because all Saul will know is that Samuel went to Bethlehem to make a sacrifice and he need not find out anything about the, the anointing of a new king. So Samuel prepares a sacrifice and has the men of Bethlehem consecrate themselves, ready themselves for this sacrifice, and then he gives a special invitation to, to Jesse and to Jesse's sons. When Samuel sees the sons, he, he approaches each one in turn, beginning with the eldest, and he assumes that the eldest and the strongest is going to be God's choice for king. But in the midst of that assumption, God's word comes directly to Samuel, and he's rocked on his heels because God turns the entire method of judging kingliness entirely on its head. He tells Samuel not to look at the stature of these brothers, but to trust in him because God looks not at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Now, if you take time later to look at some of the stories in the earlier part of the Old Testament, you'll see that this is most often God's way. What God most often tends to do is to turn the natural order of things on their, on, on their heads. You go way back to Genesis and you've got God choosing Abel over Cain. Abel's the, Abel's the younger brother. Cain's the firstborn. You've got God choosing Isaac over his half-brother Ishmael. Ishmael's older. You've got God choosing Jacob over Esau. They're twins, but Esau was born first. You've got Jacob in his blessing of his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, switching his hands. He gives the blessing to the younger rather than to the older. You also see this played out in the New Testament as well, where, where you find the first shall be last, the poor shall be rich, and to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become like a child. And here we see this very same thing happening again in God choosing a king for Israel. He passes over the seven sons, and he chooses number eight, the youngest. That's how the word tends to be translated. But it can also be translated as the smallest, or as Peterson puts it in the message, the runt. It's a, it's a derogatory term. The runt, the smallest. David's lack of importance is seen in the job that he was given. He was sent out to... To, to do the thankless and dangerous task of being a shepherd. You get the sense that David was held in contempt by the rest of his family. They looked down on him. He was the youngest. He was the smallest, probably too small. He was the runt. They were so glad to have him out of the way that it never even occurred, even to his father, Jesse, to invite him to come along to the sacrifice. So when Samuel asks if there are any more, Jesse's incredulous. He says, well, there's David, but what do you want him for? Apart from the fact that he's the youngest and that God has turned the natural order again on its head, there's a couple of other things that are very significant about David. The first thing is his name. Now, there is a little bit of debate as to what his name really means, but most 
most people would tell you that it means beloved, which is kind of ironic in some ways when you think about the attitude of his family, why they would call him David, beloved. If it does mean beloved, though, it doesn't point to his family. It actually points away from them. And first of all, it points to the men who many years later were under his charge. These men would have done anything for him. In fact, there are stories about David's mighty men putting themselves into, in, into extremely dangerous situations because their desire was to serve their Lord, David, their beloved. But it does more than that. It points beyond even them, and it points to the one who loves him and has chosen him, God himself. The one who is rejected is chosen and set apart by God. I wonder if I can suggest that the very name David points to the one who was despised and rejected of men, the one who came to his own, but his own received him not, who as he rose out of the waters of baptism was declared to be God's beloved son. That's the first thing. The second thing uh, about David in this passage is that he's introduced as a shepherd. Now, I don't want to say too much about shepherds tonight because in the next study, we're, we're going to look at shepherds in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at their significance. But let me simply say that according to 1 Chronicles 11 and verse 2, when David was publicly anointed king in Hebron, God told him through Nathan the prophet that he would be the shepherd and prince of God's people Israel. He was to be the shepherd king, not just the shepherd who became a king. He was to be the shepherd king. He was beloved, and he loved his people as a shepherd loves and tends his sheep. Again, this points beyond itself, doesn't it? And it shows us the one who was the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. That's the second thing. The third thing that's significant, believe it or not, is, is David's place in the birth order. Now, don't, no, don't worry. I'm not going to go down the whole family systems path. Don't worry about it. Um, but it is significant where he is in the birth order. He was the eighth son. Now, numbers are not always significant in Scripture, but sometimes they are. There are some numbers that have a, a very, very deep significance. I mean, we all know the big one, don't we? Six, six, six. <laughs> the number of the beast. You know that number? Six, six, six. It's based on the number six, which is the number for imperfection. It's one less than seven, which is the number for perfection and for completion. In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. There's the number 40. It's the number that represents so often preparation. Forty years wandering in the wilderness. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. If we go back to number seven, this this number for, for perfection or completion, and we think about the number that follows that, the number eight, I wonder what does that number actually 
stand for? What does it mean? What does it represent? Well, it's been suggested that the number eight represents new beginnings. If seven's completion, eight means something new, new beginnings. Think about it. There were eight people in the ark. Circumcision took place on the eighth day. David was the eighth son. He was to be the new king. He was to usher in the new kingdom. Incidentally, in in many churches that practice infant baptism, you'll find that the font has eight sides. It's shaped as an octagon. Ours is actually hexagonal. I counted it. We only have six sides. I don't know why that is. So you might not believe me, but it is true. Many churches do have octagonal baptismal fonts. Baptism representing new life, new beginnings. Now again, this theme of, of new life, surely it points to the one who came to make all things new and to seal the new covenant in his blood. So Bethlehem is the city of David. Now the name of Bethlehem is also very significant in the role that it plays in, in salvation history. Bethlehem is actually made up of two words. Beit, which means house, and lechem, which means bread. You put the two together and you come up with house of bread, believe it or not. House of bread, Bethlehem. It's more than likely based on that name that Bethlehem had a, had a, a, a fine mill for, for grinding grains. Many people, when they made bread, they would, they would probably use very coarsely ground wheat and end up with a kind of whole grain type of, type of flatbread. But the flour that came from a mill like the one that, that may have been in Bethlehem would have been a very special bread, a very soft, um, a very fine bread, perhaps used for the most special of occasions. Bread was, was obviously uh, the staple, and it still is for, for, for many people in the Middle East. But remember, Jesus said something very, very specific about bread. Listen to these words from John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The one who was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, was the one who would have his body broken and would be seen to be the bread of life. Bethlehem, the house of bread. There's, there's one more aspect to the story of Bethlehem that, that Willie Barclay reminds us of in his commentary on, on Luke's gospel. In his, in his comments about the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem, he says this, in all likelihood, these were very special shepherds. In the temple, morning and evening, an unblemished lamb was offered as a sacrifice to God. To see that the supply of perfect offerings was always available, the temple authorities had their own private flocks. And we know that these flocks were pastured near Bethlehem. It's most likely that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen. It's a lovely thought 
that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Bethlehem tells the story of the perfect lambs offered for sacrifice, raised there for generations. Now, there was no temple in David's day. It was Solomon that built the first temple, David's son. But remember, he was a shepherd in the fields of Bethlehem. They'd been raised there for more than a thousand years. Bethlehem points to the Lamb of God who does take away the sin of the world. Now, today in the, in the center of the city of Bethlehem, there's a church that was first built in the fourth century called the Church of the Nativity. It was added to in the sixth century and, and during the period of the Crusades. What stands today is a structure that's been in place for more than 1,700 years. It's been a place of continuous worship during that time. During the Crusades, the first king of Jerusalem was actually crowned in the church of the Nativity. Now, one of the most striking features about this church is not how ornate it is, but in fact, quite the opposite. It's, It's the entranceway to this church from Manger Square. During the time of the Crusades, the, 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 the large door um, was, was basically bricked up, and the entrance was turned into a very small rectangular door. Initially, it was to prevent looters from, from entering in with carts and horses. Today, the doorway is still as it was a thousand years ago, a low, small rectangle. And anyone who wants to enter that sanctuary has to bend and almost crawl into that space. It's called the door of humility. The door of humility. To approach the place of the birth of Christ, we have to bow, and we have to enter with a humble heart. So, the story of Bethlehem is a story of of pilgrimage. It tells the story of one who redeems. It points to the God who turns everything on its head, of the one who is God's beloved, who has a shepherd's heart for the people of God and hints at an expectation for God to do new things. It tells us of the one who is the bread of life, who is the Lamb of God, And as we approach this place, and especially as we approach the one to whom it points, we have to bow, and we have to humble ourselves. Amen.